Welcome to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman. Recently, I was able to catch up with Dr. Jamie Wood to talk about the great medieval figure, Isidore of Seville. Dr. Wood earned his PhD at the University of Manchester and is now the senior lecturer in the School of History and Heritage, as well as School Director of Learning and Teaching at the University of Lincoln in the UK. His edited volume, Isidore of Seville and His Reception in the Early Middle Ages, which he co-edited with Dr. Andrew Fear of the University of Manchester, is available from Amsterdam University Press. I'll talk to Dr. Wood about the book as a whole, but the bulk of our discussion will be about his article within the volume, which is entitled A Family Affair, Leander, Isidore, and the Legacy of Gregory the Great in Spain. Uh, Dr. Wood, can you tell us a little bit about who Isidore of Seville is and what makes him a significant figure? Isidore of Seville is a bishop um, who lives in the late 6th and early 7th century in southern Spain. Um, he seems to have been part of a, a quite an important family. His brother was the preceding bishop of Seville. Uh, his father was probably a kind of aristocratic figure in the south. Um, and we know that one of his other brothers was also a bishop and his sister was... Um, probably lived in a, in a nunnery, so they were probably quite an important family in the region of uh, Baitica, which is a province in the south of Spain, um, more or less the same as modern-day Andalusia. So he was Bishop of Spain, uh, Bishop of Seville. He played a very important role in the transmission of a lot of early Christian uh, writings and the kind of processing of the, these writings and their transmission into the medieval period. So he's someone who's very important from the transmission of ancient learning into the medieval period um, but he doesn't just kind of blindly mindlessly transmit information he's someone who kind of in the, in the process of transmitting it transforms it and makes it attempts to make it useful for his own um, context and his own religious political social environment he's he's definitely the most prolific writer of early medieval Spain probably the most prolific writer of the seventh century anywhere and he writes across a lot of different fields of knowledge, so he's important because he writes historical works which tell us something about what was going on in that period in Spain and shortly beforehand. Uh, he writes um, kind of pastoral works and works that seem to have been intended for the organisation of the church and to make the, the church function more efficiently in the period. But he writes across a lot of other fields too, particularly on language, uh, grammar, and the or he's very interested in the origins of words. So his, probably his most famous work is a work called The Etymologies, which is, um, well, it's kind of like an encyclopedia, but it, it's organised uh, to trace the origins of, of thousands of different words. And Isidore seems to have thought that by tracing the origins of words and the origins of language, it, it would enable him and the people who followed him to get, in a way, to be better able to understand and control the world if they could understand where the words that describe the world came from. So he's uh, important on this kind of linguistic project as well as in his attempts to record history and his attempts to organize the church. If a listener wanted to get his or her hands on something in English by Isidore, what, would, are there, what books are available? If you wanted to get hold of um, some of his historical writings, you could look at um, a book translation of his history of the Goths which is a history of the, the people who were in kind of, uh, the, the kind of regime that was in charge of Spain at the time he was writing the Visigoths, um, that's available in a translation uh, in, by Liverpool University Press, uh, done by someone called Kenneth Baxter Wolfe um, 
in a, in a book called Conquerors and Chroniclers of Early Medieval Spain. So it's one of the chapters in that, uh, one of the sections in that book. You could find his chronicle online simply by doing a, a, a search for um, the Chronica Maiora of Isidore of Seville. Uh, you could find the etymologies in a translation by uh, a group of people, including Stephen Barney, which is um, published by Cambridge University Press. And other writings are you know, relatively widely available in English translations or Spanish translation in particular. Um, so it's relatively easy to get hold of some versions of Isidore's writings, but not all of them have been translated. So that's part of that's an important project that someone needs to do in the future. So the present book that you've done uh, with uh, Dr. Andrew Fear is called Isidore of Seville and His Reception in the Early Middle Ages. Can you tell us a little bit about what reception is and why you decided to dedicate an entire volume to the reception of Isidore of Seville? Reception is, to my mind, it's thinking about how and why people use or refer to previous texts or previous authors in their own specific context and what that um, might tell us about what they're trying to do in their own kind of environment, their own immediate context. So looking at in the case of the Isidore book, looking both at what previous authors Isidore was using and how he was using them, because he doesn't just slavishly copy, he adapts them, he uh, mixes them together, he remixes them really into different uh, combinations um, and then adds his own perspective onto them. So he's, he's not simply receiving something and passing it on as received, he's transforming it in the process. So one of the aspects of the book was to look at Isidore's kind of, I don't know if it's a creative process, but it's certainly a process, his working process. How does he take on um, texts written hundreds of years before, or even maybe relatively recently, and change them to be appropriate in his own historical context? Then the second half of the book was really looking at how Isidore how Isidore's own legacy, so how his kind of creative process is then received by people later on in various parts of Western Europe, um, France, England, Ireland, Italy, and also in Spain itself, and how people were then kind of reprogramming what he'd done and making it useful in their own context, so in the process transforming again. So it's kind of reception is thinking about creative working processes in their own context and seeing it, you know, what historical information we can take from that. that from my perspective, that's what rece- reception is anyway. So, so why do a, uh, a book about specifically about Isidore uh, and his use of reception and also then the way that he's received? So, we, well, there are, we decided to do a book about Isidore because there isn't really very much written in English about Isidore that looks at him in as a kind of his kind of creative process. There's quite a number of works written in Spanish and French, but not very much in English. So partly we were trying to kind of uh, open him up to a to a different kind of audience. Um, so that was one one angle. Another angle was that we we ran a, a small conference and a number of the people people came to the conference and gave interesting papers. So we wanted to kind of bring together this kind of a cluster of uh, papers and publish it and share what we'd done and what we'd learnt by talking to each other with with other people. Yeah, and secondly, like I said, there's Isidore's 
studies of Isidore tend to look at individual texts or tend to look at, um, you know, either focus on his context or focus on individual texts and how they kind of influence over time. What we were trying to do here was to do something that collectively was a bit more synthetic and drew together different you know, different perspectives. So across the course of the volume, we get a perspective on his reception all over kind of early medieval Western Europe rather than just looking at one place or just looking at one text or just focusing on Isidore himself. We wanted something that was kind of overarching. Um, so there are a lot of specific studies in the volume, but collectively they, they kind of give a good overview, I think. So your article uh, is called uh, A Family Affair, Leander, Isidore, and the Legacy of Gregory the Great in Spain. So, so your article is actually dealing with the reception of Pope Gregory the Great. So can you tell listeners uh, first who Gregory was uh, and why it's important to understand his reception? Gregory was um, Pope right at the, at the very end of the 6th century and the first few years of the 7th century. So he's, a, he's only very... You know, very shortly before Isidore, they're almost well. They overlap. So it's one thing that's very interesting to look at um, where someone who is writing very, very shortly before Isidore, how Isidore almost immediately receives his work and then starts to kind of play around with it and transform it. So that was one of the things: is kind of the rapidity of the transmission of information, and then it's it's repurposing within a decade or even even more quickly. Gregory the Great was. Um, Gregory the First, so the first Pope of Rome called Gregory. Um, he came from an aristocratic Roman family, so kind of a family of some kind of uh, ancient pedigree. They were part of the kind of elite of Rome. Earlier in his career, he'd worked as prefect of the city of Rome, so he'd been in charge of the um, the administration of the city. So very basic, well, the basic running function of the city, I guess, kind of like a mayor might be in a modern modern day so making sure the water supply works making sure the city's um, the food supply is functioning all those kind of things making sure the day to day running of the of the city is, is okay then after doing that for a, a certain period of time he seems to have taken the decision to well he definitely took the decision to withdraw from this kind of secular public life and he withdrew from this role as prefect of the city and started to uh, you know took up a, an ascetic life so he became a monk essentially, and then lived as a monk for a number of years. Then it seems that his, uh, you know, his commitment to you know, this kind of religious lifestyle, but also his experience as a, um, you know, in secular office, meant that he was a kind of pretty effective administrator and that he got drawn into the papal bureaucracy, so he started to work for the Pope, including uh, going to... Constantinople and kind of acting as a papal ambassador at the court in uh, the Byzantine imperial court in Constantinople so acting as a kind of intermediary between the Pope in Rome and the Byzantine emperor in Constantinople eventually he then goes back to um, Rome and is elected uh, becomes Pope in 590 and he's Pope for about uh, sort of just over a decade and during that period of time he oversees um, kind of uh, increased bureaucracy within within the, the, the papacy so from Gregory's reign we have the kind of enormous number of letters which tell us quite well it tells a great deal about how he's kind of in a way applying 
what he learned in the secular administration to the functioning of the, ch uh, the kind of the running of the church and its estates in Rome and in Italy. So Gregory is someone who's uh, where we can really clearly see the, the, the start, the functioning of a kind of medieval, more of a medieval style papacy, where it's this kind of like you know an, an increased bureaucracy, the management of the estates, all those kind of things. At the same time as being a kind of manager. Gregory is also someone who's producing a great deal of um, theological and pastoral writings, so things like uh, homilies, uh, texts about various uh, kind of commentaries on various books of the Bible, on various aspects of kind of Christian rulership and, and kind of Christian governance. So he's someone who's grappling with this idea of how do you balance the kind of secular responsibilities of the church to run its estates and to kind of protect the people over it. Um, over which it's ruling at the same time as meeting its pastoral responsibilities as a kind of Christian institution and how do you make sure that preaching is happening that you know Christian messages are being brought across so how to kind of uh, to marry these two things so he writes a lot of works that are kind of dealing with this intersection of kind of the church as an institution and the church as a kind of uh, well the church is a religious institution and the church as a kind of I don't know, a financial or an economic institution at the same time. So you mentioned seeing Gregory as, uh, as a medieval pope, but he is also still uh, living in, a, in the period that we think of as being late antiquity as well as the early Middle Ages. Uh, how can we see Gregory as sort of both an ancient and a medieval figure, and what is his significance there? Okay, that's, that's a really interesting point because I think there are some similarities between Gregory and Isidore as these people who are kind of the in a way the culmination of kind of late ancient Christianity and kind of church governance but also starting a new a new trajectory for the church really um, and for the relationship between the church and society so I think one way in which we could see Gregory is as a kind of um, you know he comes from the elite um, he's he's a kind of um, you know he's got this background in Roman administration really he's the kind of he's in a way applying the lessons of late Roman governance to the functioning of uh, the Roman Church at the end of the sixth century, but at the same time he has this this new twist, which is, oh, you know, d a development of what uh, of a strand uh, more strongly, which is this idea of you know, he's the first pope who's a monk, so he's the first kind of, a, or at least the first pope we know of. So he's the first, in a way, asceticizing vision of the papacy. So that, in a way, that's kind of a more medieval vision coming through, but also this this grappling with the idea of how do you make the church uh, fulfill its kind of pastoral function and how do you balance those two things the pastoral function with its kind of it's kind of the fact that it's a huge landowner and it's it, it's deriving a great deal of power from the cultural capital it's, de it's de kind of generated from these aristocratic associations so how to balance those two those two things and in a way Isidore's dealing with that same that same challenge in Spain but today we know Pope Gregory I as Gregory the Great. And your article argues that Isidore of Seville is in fact an important figure in promoting the reputation of Gregory I. Uh, can you tell us how that works? How does Isidore promote Gregory's reputation in Spain? Well, I think one of the reasons why Gregory's thought of as being great is, you know, is he wrote a lot. <laughs> he wrote a lot, so we, and we, so we're able to see um, a great deal about his, his, his kind of world in a way, so there's, that's one aspect. 
another reason in the English tradition anyway is that Gregory is the person who sends the mission that converts the Anglo-Saxons to Christianity so within kind of in the English scholarly tradition and well also kind of English church tradition he's viewed very as a kind of foundational figure it's he, he's kind of ultimately responsible for the conversion of the English to Christianity um, but in a Spanish context I think Isidore's role in the kind of promotion of Gregory is should be context, contextualized within Gregory's kind of greater earlier history really so when Gregory goes as a papal envoy to Constantinople Isidore's brother and predecessor as, as Bishop of Seville someone, uh, someone called Leander of Seville um, is there acting as an ambassador for uh, a Visigothic prince who is at that point in time rebelling against his father so Gregory and Isidore's elder brother meet in Constantinople and seem to have kind of uh, developed quite a close working relationship um, Gregory dedicates one of his most famous works to Leander um, the Moralia and Job a, a kind of commentary on the biblical book the Old Testament book of Job so it's clear that they kind of make become friends in Constantinople and they make an association that continues afterwards it's clear that there's a, a degree of communication between them once Gregory's back in Sp uh, in Rome and Leander's back in Spain um, we don't have many letters but it's clear in, in the kind of pieces of evidence that we do have that there is a continued contact of some kind between the two of them um, so there's this kind of personal connection between Gregory and Isidore's brother and Leander seems to have played a very important role in, the, in Isidore's own education so he see, he, Isidore's kind of looks up, seems to look up to Leander the second element is a kind of links to the Gregory's role in the conversion of the English is Gregory is also the Pope at the time um, that the Visigoths convert from Arian Christianity to Nicene or Ca what people later term Catholic Christianity so they move away from uh, a, a position on that is kind of viewed as heretical to one that's viewed as orthodox so Gregory's seen as becomes the Pope who's associated again with this kind of transformative moment in almost the, the the birth of Catholic Spain some some kind of scholars in the you know, in the 19th century before would have seen it as Gre Gregory's being important because he's part of this kind of foundational moment of Spanish Catholic history so there's this kind of, this kind of like institutional context and a personal context which create a situation in which I think Isidore's interested in promoting Gregory because he can do things for the Spanish church and probably for Isidore's own kind of status. The other issue as well is that I think this, this connectivity that exists between Gregory and Leander and Gregory in Spain more generally means that Isidore has some access to Gregory's writings relatively quickly. So he's in a way he's he's one of the first people to kind of get access to the, the, these works that are going to be medieval bestsellers he kind of he's one of the first people to get hold of them and then start to use them so he's kind of engaging in, in kind of cutting edge research really when he when he becomes bishop of seville he has access to these kind of really up-to-date works of scholarly works that are about the bible that are about kind of how you run the church how all these kind of important uh, issues that Isidore's interested in, how you educate Christians. 
So you mentioned that Isidore uses Gregory's work uh, in order to promote his own status. Uh, can you tell us how he does that? One of the ways in which he does this is through writing biographies. So he writes um, a text called the De Viris Illustribus, which means kind of on famous men. So it's about um, kind of famous Christians of the past. Um, and in, this te- in, in Isidore's text, he tries to um, write these very short, relatively short biographies of famous, mainly Spanish bishops. And one of my arguments is that Isidore is trying to um, create a kind of, or kind of increase the status of the Spanish Church by by writing these stories of its famous bishops, which haven't been written down before. One of the things he seems to do is to kind of centre the text around Leander, and so he's trying to augment the status of his own brother by writing biographies of other Spanish bishops that are kind of patterned on that of Leander. So Leander is the kind of archetype, the kind of... Of the famous men, he's meant to be the most famous in Isidore's vision of the kind of Spanish church. He also writes a biography of Gregory, which he inserts um, before that of Leander, and he really emphasises the connection between Gregory and Leander. He talks about them writing um, writing, uh, texts to each other. So he he seems to use, associate Leander with Gregory in order to augment Leander's status within the Spanish church, and at the same time enable him to augment the status of the Spanish church in general. So, so Gregory serves a purpose kind of, again, personally for Isidore and his family, but also kind of institutionally for the Spanish church or for Isidore's vision of Spain as a legitimate part of the kind of Christian project or the Orthodox Christian project uh, because it's only just become, um, or, or at least the, the Visigothic rulers have only just become Orthodox. So it's, a, it's part of this kind of foundational moment for, for the Spanish church or Isidore's story of the Spanish church. So you've been talking about the Spanish Church uh, almost as a separate organization from the Church in Rome. What is the relationship between the Spanish Church and the Pope uh, at this moment, around 600? Well, I think the exact nature of the relationship is quite unclear. Um, so I think from our modern perspective, it's very easy to look to, to see how the Catholic Church functions now and how it functioned in the later medieval period um, and in between and see something that's quite hierarchical, quite centralised, quite or very centralised, very structured. And that certainly works for the later medieval period and the church now. But actually, that to kind of project that backwards onto the early medieval period and late antiquity oversimplifies things. Um, it's much less clear what the lines of communication are between Rome and the other churches of the Western Mediterranean, including the, the Church in Spain, that there's definitely a kind of underlying idea that the Pope has some kind of by this period, there is some kind of underlying idea that the Pope has probably has some kind of overall authority, or moral authority, if not institutional authority. So that's why the Visigothic kings write to Gregory to tell him that they've converted. Although it does take them three, I think, three years to do this, so it's obviously not that urgent. Uh, it's not a kind of centralised bureaucracy in which the Spanish church is subservient to the Roman church 
those lines of communication are much more blurred, much less uh, frequent. The, the degree of contract seems to, you know, it doesn't happen that often. And very often the Pope might try to tell the Spanish, or a Spanish bishop what to do, but it's very unclear as to whether the Spanish bishops will actually listen to what's being, what they're being told. So um, it's a much more um, kind of unclear situation um, and that the Spanish church probably has a great deal, you know, a lot of autonomy. I think also I've been talking about the Spanish church and it would be a mistake to, to think that the Spanish church itself is kind of monolithic and unified. There are different provinces within the Spanish, the kind of Hispania, as it, as it was known. And within those different provinces, there are different cities, each of which has their own bishop. And the bishops, in a way, are very powerful within their own cities. They will, uh, it's clear from the records that they're, they're as often conflicting with each other as they are cooperating with each other, so that the bishops of Spain are not a unified group. Um, and in a context in which the um, Visigothic monarchy has only recently kind of adopted Orthodox Catholic Christianity, that kind of merging of, of the power of the king and the power of the state, or them, them, uh, the power of the king and the power of the church, and that they're, they're, they're not in a cooperative relationship yet. This, these things are being worked out. Um, so the Spanish church itself is not very structured in practice, even if in theory people like to present it as being quite organised. So Isidore's story of a, a unified Catholic hierarchical church is its his wish, it's not what's actually happening uh, in practice. So you mentioned that Gregory's commentary on the book of Job was uh, dedicated to Leander, the brother of Isidore. What does Isidore do with that text? So the Moralian Job is a very, very long and uh, kind of not necessarily complicated but it's, it's kind of multi-layered because uh, Gregory interprets the book of Job on a number of different levels so he reads it literally and then he tries to apply a number of different techniques to kind of unpicking the the underlying meanings of the book of Job it, that it's a kind of key uh, the literal reading is a kind of key to unpicking all of these different divine kind of uh, sacred messages that are un un underpinning the kind of surface reading so there's a lot that Isidore could take away from this text and what, what he does is he doesn't he doesn't um, as I said slavishly copy the text he repurposes it for his own needs so for example Isidore um, one of Isidore's most important works is a book called the Sententiae which is uh, a book it's actually three books that are kind of a... They offer kind of guidelines for how... Guidelines for, for how a cleric might think about kind of different aspects of Christian life and Christian, Christian leadership. And what, what Isidore does is takes different sections from the Moralia and Job, cuts them up and applies them thematically to these elements of... Um, Christian life. So rather than it being, uh, as the Moralia is focused on an individual text, what Isidore is doing is, is cutting up Gregory and other writers like St. Augustine uh, and then re reconfiguring them to apply to different aspects of Christian life, like perhaps um, defining what it is to be a, a monk or what it is to be a Christian judge or what it means to be um, a Christian king. Uh, 
so it becomes a kind of thematically reorganized rather than organized according to a text. And Isidore does that across a whole range of different writings, that he's someone who's kind of creating what I think are, are very much educational texts or guidebooks that are in, in a way slicing up earlier people's writings and then reconfiguring them into a new, a new kind of collage uh, that is meant to be useful, practically useful at, if, you're a, you know, if you're a priest or if you're a bishop or if you're a monk. Um, and that certainly seems to be how these texts are later received. Many of them are kind of become sort of standard, standard texts that you find in monastic libraries, and that, that that's probably because Isidore, they're very useful. He's, he's kind of creating these, um, not necessarily idiots' guides to how to be a monk or how to be a priest, but idiots' guides or kind of basic introductions to how to do certain aspects of Christian Christian life. Would Isidore's Sententiae have been useful to someone who was not a professional, a professional cleric? One of the problems with um, kind of addressing that question is that the later copies of Isidore's works that we have, one of most of Gregory's works and most of these early medieval writers, is that they've almost and all of them have been transmitted via monastic libraries. So what we have are um, evidence of their transmission through monasteries. So it's difficult to see where else they were used uh, beyond that, but it, it's clear that the, the Isidore's texts are being used. Dr. Wood, thanks for stopping by and talking to us today. No problem. That's it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, aweatque wale. <laughs>